0: Emmaus, you sing beautifully this morning. I want to say grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As you can see and hear, uh, now is the time where Emmaus' kids is dismissed. So parents, if you have children who are going to a class, they can make their way there uh, at this point in the service. Uh, Listen, we have a slide on the screen, or it's It's going to be on the screen. It's got a couple of QR codes. There's a QR code for how to give online. There's also a QR code for how to get connected online. But we also have a way for you to get connected here today, this morning. Uh, We are going to be having, immediately after service is over, we're going to be having what we call Emmaus in 10. So if you're a guest with us, if you're new today, listen up because this is for you. Uh, If you're interested in learning what it means to get connected in community here at Emmaus, if you're interested in taking a first step toward us, Emmaus and 10 is for you. You'll walk out of the theater here. You'll go out in the lobby and go all the way to your left, uh, out into the far left lobby. There'll be a sign out there to guide you and there will be people to welcome you and to give you information. You'll get to meet some of our leaders some of our members, and it's always a great time. We're always super thankful to be able to welcome people to that. Also, if you are a member, this is for you. We have a Covenant Members Meeting coming up on September 10th. Sunday, September 10th at 5.30 p.m. We'll be meeting at Northland Baptist Church. Uh, We'll meet there to welcome some new members to Emmaus, We'll meet there to baptize a few people. We'll have a few baptisms that night, which is really exciting. Uh, And we'll also just celebrate and talk about all the great things that God is doing in and through our church. So covenant members, and, and for those of you who also are on your way to covenant membership at this point, that night is for you. September 10th, 5.30 p.m. at Northland Baptist Church. Emmaus, would you welcome Hannah Schreiner to come to the stage? Thank you. Hannah's going to make an announcement about women's Bible study.
1: Thanks, Tyler. Yeah. Um, As he mentioned, my name is Hannah Schreiner. Um, I recently became the deacon over the women's ministry here at Emmaus. And I wanted to take a minute just to invite you. Some of you have been here a while, and you kind of know the rhythms of what we do um, each semester. And some of you are new. And so I want to let you know that in the spring, as well as in the fall, the women um, gather in different groups to study God's word. So as we're learning what is Emmaus all about, we're talking about creed, community, and Commission, and how else do we know creed but by studying the word? And so it is a real gift to um, to our body at large and to the women individually that we get to study God's word. So this fall we're going to be doing First, Second, Third John. Um, it's a ten week study. It costs thirteen dollars to sign up. There has been is there no okay. Um, An email that's gone out. If you haven't got that, I'm going to be at the Emmaus in 10, and I can give you the link to sign up for that Bible study. So we have four different groups, um, two in the morning and two in the evenings at different days of the week. So hopefully there is a time that fits your schedule. And it's just a joy to be with other ladies that you have uniquely covenanted to here at Emmaus studying God's word. We get to go deep into one, or in this case, three particular books. And yeah, I think it is definitely worth your time. If you're new and you haven't done it, I would just say uh, jump in this semester. So we have a kickoff event September 9th um, at Northland Baptist Church. Aaron Green is going to do an overview for us of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And so it's also just a time of fellowship, yeah, where you can come, even if you can't do the study come to the kickoff event, get to know other ladies at Emmaus, and learn a little bit about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. All right. Hey, Hannah,
0: if they want to like email you, how do they do that? What's the best email for you? It's
1: women at EmmausKC.com. Yep. Thank
0: you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Hannah. Amen. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew will be in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Matthew twenty-eight sixteen through 20. The very last handful of verses in the book. If history teaches us anything, it's that asking the right question at the right moment can make all the difference. Recently, early it's more earlier this year, really, not too recent, but I went with some of the guys, some guys here from Emmaus uh, to see the movie Air. Probably heard of this movie, you know of it or you've seen it. Uh, if you haven't, it tells the story of how Nike, the, the shoe and athletic company Nike, developed the Air Jordan brand. And it dawned on me as I watched the movie that this story really sort of hinges on one question. It hinges on this question. What if we designed an entire line of shoes around just one athlete? No one had ever done that before, right? Up until this point in time, what shoe companies were doing is they would design the shoe that they wanted to design and then they would go out and find athletes to help them sort of market the shoe. But Nike reenvisioned this entire process. They changed the game in an unprecedented way. And they did it by finding one player and creating the line of shoes around him. And really, it, it paid off. As of the year 2022, the Air Jordan brand had generated for Nike $5.2 billion in sales. It is one of the most successful, one of the most recognizable brand names ever conceived, conceived. And it helped to forever cement Michael Air Jordan as a global sports icon. That's the power of asking the right question at the right moment, which is exactly what we've been seeking to do as a church. We have been seeking to ask the right question at the right moment. And the right question for us at this moment in time is what is Emmaus all about what is Emmaus all about we began answering that question a couple weeks back by looking at our creed then last week we looked at community and now today quite predictably we are looking at our commission and we're going to talk about how we pursue kingdom advancement that's the big idea for today's message It's that our commission centers on the pursuit of God's kingdom advancing here in the streets of Kansas City and to the ends of the earth. So would you read with me from Matthew's gospel? Again, we'll be in Matthew 28. Begin reading in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. In these words spoken by the Lord Jesus on a mountain in Galilee, we discover that our commission rests upon three things. It rests on his authority. It rests upon the assignment he has given to us. And it rests on the assurance that we have received from him. So that's the three points of the message for today. Number one, authority. Number two, assignment. Number three, assurance. That's where we're going. So first look with me at authority, the authority of Jesus. Notice in verse 18 that when Jesus addresses his disciples there on the mountaintop. He does not begin with a command. He does not lead with the imperative. Instead, he starts with a claim, a claim about himself. He says, of course, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In many ways, this is a Fulfillment of something that was said centuries earlier in the prophecy of Daniel. In Daniel 7.14, we learn that Daniel sees a vision of a son of man. And Daniel tells us that to this son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. So the son of man of Daniel's vision is the Jesus of Matthew's gospel. Jesus himself makes this quite explicit. He refers again and again and again to himself by this name, the Son of Man. And he does this to communicate that he's the one that Daniel saw. He's the one who has been given all authority to rule over all the nations of the earth. It's important for us to get this because we need to understand the nature of Christ's authority. We need to understand the nature of his authority, particularly as it relates to our commission. His authority is the power of our commission. His authority is the power of our commission. His authority is the the basis for guaranteed success. Our commission will be effective. It will not fail. Because the one who has given it to us, the one who has given our commission to us, has all authority. He rules over all times, people's, places, and events. His dominion is not in question. And so we can be sure that his kingdom will advance to the ends of the earth. In fact, this is something that Matthew is very keen on demonstrating throughout the entirety of his gospel account. The claim of Christ's authority, it doesn't just pop up randomly here at the end of the book. No, In so many ways, Matthew has been building up to this moment. What Jesus tells his disciples on this mountain in Galilee is a culmination of a series of mountaintop moments that are woven throughout this gospel. You see, Matthew has this really strange habit, a really interesting habit of bringing up the authority of Jesus anytime Jesus sets foot on a mountain. And these mountaintop moments in the gospel of Matthew reveal the nature of the authority that Jesus has. So just think about this with me for a moment. If you rewind all the way back to the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, there's this moment where the devil brings Jesus up on a very high mountain. And the devil says to him, if you worship me, then all the kingdoms of the earth will be yours. And suddenly before the eyes of Jesus, all the kingdoms of the earth appear. He sees all of the world, all the rulers, all the nations of the earth. And Satan says, these are going to be yours if you just bow down right now and worship. me. But of course, Jesus famously responds by saying, be gone, Satan. And then he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So in his temptation, we see Jesus resisting satanic authority. He refuses to receive anything from Satan because he knows where his authority must come from. It must come from God. Jesus does not take the shortcut. He does not get duped into accepting a counterfeit authority. No, the man Christ Jesus will rightfully receive his authority by obeying his Father. But we see this not only in his temptation, we see it also in his teaching. At the beginning of the very next chapter of Matthew, chapter 5, it says that Jesus, seeing the crowds who were coming to him, he went up on a mountain and he opened his mouth and he taught them. And what comes next is famously known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is pretty much the most significant sermon in the history of the world. And we know why. We can see why. It's because by the end of the sermon, by the time Jesus has concluded his teaching, the crowds were blown away. Like they had to pick up their jaw off the floor. By the end of chapter 7, the crowds were, were astonished by his teaching. And it says, this is because he had taught them as one who had authority. So in his teaching, the authority of Jesus is recognized by men. And then there's Matthew 17, where Jesus once again goes up on a very high mountain this time with three of his disciples, Peter and James and John. And Matthew tells us that there on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them. He describes Jesus as as having his face shining like the sun at full strength. It says that, that the clothes that he was wearing, his garments became radiant. But the real kicker is that While Jesus is on the mountain with his disciples, a voice bellows from heaven above, the very voice of God, in order to communicate what this transfiguration, what this moment is all about. God says, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. So listen to him. Listen to him. And by listen to him, God's not saying like, oh, you know, hear what he has to say. Hear hear him out. See if you like the teachings of Jesus and then you can kind of make up your own mind by comparing it to the other teachings that are out there. No, the kind of listening that God has in mind is the kind of listening where you hang on every word you pay attention to every detail because the person that you are listening to is a person of authority. Which means that in his transfiguration, the authority of Jesus is confirmed by God himself. So the authority of Jesus, number one, cannot be co-opted by Satan. Number two, it is recognized by men. And number three, it is confirmed By God above. Which means that by the time we get to Matthew chapter 28, we can see that it is perfectly good and rightful for the risen Christ to stand upon a mountain once again and claim that all authority, not some, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. So in telling us to go, and telling us to go to the nations, Jesus is asserting his authority. He is asserting his authority as the very power of our commission. One commentator notes this. That because of the cosmic grandeur of the message from this mountain in Matthew 28. The prophecy of Isaiah chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 comes to mind. Now just... Just listen to what it says in this prophecy. It speaks of yet another mountain where the authority of Jesus is on full display. Isaiah prophesies, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come. And they shall say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob. That he may teach us his ways. And that we may walk in his paths." Do you see what Isaiah is telling? Do you see what he is getting at. He's saying that the royal mountain of Jesus will be exalted, right? Notice the, the presence of the word shall. It shall happen. It shall be exalted. The nations shall flow to it. They shall say, come, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us go to his mountain. Friends, what this means is that the end is already written. The success of this commission is guaranteed. These things will happen. God has promised it to us. And when he promises something, well, it's as good as done. So let me ask you, what's holding you back? When it comes to our commission, what's keeping you from being All in. There's this stand-up routine that, that Jerry Seinfeld does, where he talks about the number one fear that people have. You can probably guess what it is. At the top of the list, the number one fear that people have is public speaking. And then Jerry observes that number two on the list is death. And the punchline of the joke goes like this. You're sitting at a funeral and you're thinking, I'd be better off in the casket than I would be doing the eulogy. Sometimes I wonder if the number one fear of the church in our lifetime is what this commission will require of us. If I'm all in... Man, does that mean that I'm going to have to give up a relationship with someone that I really love and care about? If I'm all in, is it it going to jeopardize my livelihood? If I'm all in, is it going to tarnish the reputation that I have spent years crafting and cultivating? If I'm all in, is it going to cost me something I care deeply about? These are real questions. These questions are not inconsequential. They are considerable questions. And sometimes facing them head on can be downright scary. A recent study by Lifeway Research appears to bear this out. The study showed that nearly half of regular churchgoers feel a personal responsibility to share the gospel with others. But only 12% of churchgoers had actually shared the gospel with someone in the past six months. So, just for a moment, take away like the 50% of churchgoers who, for whatever reason, don't feel a, a personal responsibility to share their faith. And then take away the other 12% who are regularly sharing their faith. What does that leave us with? Who's left? What's left is a group of Christians who are convicted by the commission, but who lack the courage and the confidence to follow through on it. And if, if, if that's you this morning, if you would say, I'm one of those people. Like, I'm, I'm one of those people who, I'm, I am I want to obey this. I know God is calling me to obey this, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid of of, of, of what it might cost me. If that's you this morning, if you would count yourself among that group, this is the confidence boost that you need. Take heart, friends. The one who has enlisted you in the commission that you belong to is the one who has all authority. His dominion stretches to the far reaches of the globe. It encompasses everything about your life, your relationships, your career, your reputation. All the things that matter to you are resting firmly in the nail-scarred hands of one who has all authority. So if you're afraid of what might happen, if you share the gospel openly, if you are afraid of what obedience might cost you, If you lack the courage to act upon your convictions, just remember who you have in your corner. Remember who is on your side. In him, there is a lifetime guarantee of power from on high because he can say without flinching, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all which means that as we go as we obey him we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 118 the Lord is on my side I will not fear what can man do to me it's a rhetorical question the answer is nothing nothing if God is on our side we are more than conquerors through him who loved us this actually brings us to our assignment. So we've looked at Christ's authority. Now we're looking at the assignment he has given to us. From the authority of Jesus, we receive our marching orders, which of course is to make disciples of all nations. And here in this passage, we find that we are to make disciples in two ways. Think of this as the, the twofold objective of our assignment. We are to number one, baptize, and number two, we are to teach. Every person who becomes a disciple of Jesus needs these two things. Every disciple is baptized on the basis of a credible profession of faith, and every disciple is taught to follow the ways of Jesus, to follow his commands. Let's look at these two things more closely. Think with me about baptism for a moment. What's baptism? How might we define it? Well, there are a few things we can say. The word baptism refers to dipping or immersing something in water, which is why for us here at Emmaus, when we baptize, we plunge someone into the baptismal waters and we bring them out of the waters. Don't worry, we're sure to bring them back up. But the reason we do this is to show that we are baptized into Christ. You see, baptism is an outward sign and seal of an inward reality that has taken place. That inward reality is that we are united to Jesus. God has called us, he, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ, who is raised from the dead, which means that we are a new creation in Christ. Because of that, because we are a new creation in him, we are now one with him. By grace through faith, we have a union with Christ. Paul says in Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so in baptism, what's happening is this union, our union with Christ, is going public. We are baptized into his death. We are plunged beneath the baptismal waters in the triune name of God. We are buried with Jesus in those waters, and we are raised from the waters to walk in new life, where we are following Jesus for the rest of our days. And yet, even though this is baptism's most talked about meaning in most churches, It is not baptism's only meaning. Because baptism is not just about our personal union with Christ. It's also about our union with his body. It's at this point, actually, where it is easy to go wrong. Because what ends up happening so often is it becomes easy for us to to think of baptism as something that just takes place between me and God. Like it's about me expressing my personal faith, my personal relationship with Jesus. And listen, baptism is not about less than that, but it is about so much more than that. Just listen to what it says in Galatians chapter three. Paul tells us that all who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ so that there is neither Jew nor Greek neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. But all of us, the whole community of disciples, all of us are one. We are one in Christ Jesus. So What's Paul saying? He's saying that our baptism brings us into the unity of, of the church union with christ cannot be separated from union with his people when we belong to jesus in discipleship it means that we also belong to that community of disciples that he has called into existence known otherwise as the local church and it's in this community where we learn the ways of jesus we learn what it means To follow him. That's the second part of our assignment. In order to make disciples, we have to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. They must learn the ways of Jesus. Now, Now, this is interesting. Because we live at a weird point in history where we have like unprecedented access to information. We can learn things anywhere, anytime. There's there's really more to learn than there is ability in us to retain what we're learning. It's like information compounds at at a breakneck speed. And Just think about some of the forms that this takes in our world today. You can buy basically any book on Amazon, and it is plopped on your doorstep in less than 48 hours. How crazy is that? You can learn online. You can learn on social media. You can learn from your favorite podcast. You can go to seminary or Bible college and earn a theological degree. You can go to a school on the other side of the world by studying online. And I'm not disparaging any of that. I would never discourage any of the things I just mentioned because they are legitimate ways of learning and growing. But with all these things at our disposal, my concern is that we, we, we can lose sight of what Jesus is saying here. We can lose sight of the substance of what he is saying, which is that the primary place that we hear the word of Christ, the primary place where we learn what it means to follow him, the primary place where we grow in our knowledge of him is the church, it's the community of disciples that is gathered and sent in his name. So these are the two aspects of our assignment. As we consider them, as we consider what it means to make disciples, what we're seeing is that this commission that we have been given, it's for the whole church. It's for all of us. It's not just for those more mature, more wise brothers and sisters who just so happen to have time in their schedule to get coffee with you? Now, I want us all to see that the environment that we are experiencing in the local church when we gather, the environment that we experience when we worship together on a Sunday morning, the environment that we experience when we do Bible studies and community groups, these environments are meant to be discipling environments, the culture that we are covenanting to build here at Emmaus, it is a discipling culture. The community that we share with brothers and sisters that we love, where we serve and encourage one another, that is meant to be discipling community, which means that the commission that lies before us this morning is a commission that always leads back to the church. It always leads back to the church. It is a commission to see gospel culture exist where it did not exist before. One author says this, that when we share the gospel, we offer others the opportunity to become part of God's people. This is a common misconception. I want to clarify our commission is not merely about seeing conversions. It is not merely about seeing initial professions of faith. We want those, all right? Conversion is essential. It's essential to life in the church. So don't hear me say that it's not. But I want you to see also that our commission does not end there. It does not end with conversion. Ultimately, we wanna see people being introduced the life of the church. This is why when Jesus gives us our assignment, he tells us to do things that the church uniquely exists to do. Baptism is a sacrament of the church. Preaching and teaching the gospel is the calling of the church. Shortly after the Protestant Reformation, it was written in the Augsburg Confession which is maybe a confession you haven't heard of, but it's a confession that was written right after the Reformation, and it says, The church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. And to the true unity of the church, it is enough to agree concerning the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. So you can see there, it, it's been understood that the church is called by Christ to do two things. We are called to baptize, make, make disciples by baptizing them. That's, that's the sacraments. And we are called to make disciples by teaching them the word of Christ. That's the doctrine of the gospel. This is our assignment, friends. Which is why this morning, I want to announce to you a new initiative. We're calling this new initiative our Share and Invite Initiative. I'm going to state the obvious. When you came into church and you sat down this morning, there was in your cup holder something waiting for you. Small card about the size of a bookmark. If you look at that card, it outlines for you what the Share and Invite Initiative is. We are asking every member of Emmaus to identify someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus. And we are asking you to do two things, commit to doing two things for that person. Just kidding, three things. I know what the card says, I promise. Do three things for that person. I don't know why I said two. We're asking you to pray. We're asking you to care. And we're asking you to share. We're Baptist, so there's some alliteration, prayer, care, share, it rhymes might not forget, though. Did you say it's not alliteration? Okay, thanks. It rhymes. Forget the alliteration part. Thanks, Jake. Yeah, alliteration is different. Thanks. I know what it is. (laughs) But that person you identify, would you pray for them? would you intercede for them and ask God to grant them faith in Jesus Christ? Would you ask God to grant them repentance that leads to life? And then would you share with them, take a step toward that person and show that you care for them in some tangible way, display the gospel to them by showing them that they matter to you, show them that you love them That you value them. This, by the way, I'm I'm, going to make a plug here. This is why we started doing Care Portal here at Emmaus. This is why we've introduced Care Portal recently. Because Care Portal is a resource that is going to allow us to effectively meet needs in our area here locally in Kansas City. We want to do that because we want people in our community to know that their needs matter to us. Their needs matter to God. And so, would you care for them? And finally, would you share with that person about Emmaus? Invite them to come with you on a Sunday morning. There's a perforated section at the bottom of the card that is designed to do just that. On the back of that perforated section, there's a short word about the gospel of Jesus. And then on the front, there is information about Emmaus. That information includes when we gather, where we gather, and how to find us online. That perforated section is there because we want you to tear that off and put it in the hands of a person who needs to hear the gospel declared and see the gospel displayed. So would you respond to our commission, Emmaus, by doing those three things? Would you pray? Would you care? And would you share? There is someone in your life. God may be even putting names and faces on your mind right now. There's someone in your life who needs you to do this. Pastor Patrick last week mentioned the epidemic of loneliness that has swept over our culture. There are untold numbers of people in our own backyard who need to be given a chance to experience the warmth of gospel culture here at Emmaus. I know we aren't the, the flashiest church in town. I'm not under the impression that a dingy movie theater is the most ideal place for a church. I know that. But I also know this I know that anytime people walk in our doors, one of the things that Emmaus excels at is making them feel seen and cared for. I hear about this all the time. It's the constant refrain I hear is how welcoming Emmaus is. So if you invite someone to church with you on a Sunday morning, we're gonna pledge to strive the very very best of our ability to do two things. We may not do these things perfectly, but we will make every effort to do these two things faithfully. We will strive to be a welcoming church and we will strive to make sure every person who comes here on a sunday morning hears the gospel we will preach clearly about jesus and we will trust him fully to reveal what paul talks about in 1 corinthians 14 he says in 1 corinthians 14 verse 24 that an unbeliever or an outsider enters the church and upon hearing the the prophetic witness of the church this unbeliever or outsider is convicted He is called to account. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among us. That actually brings us to the last thing upon which our commission is resting. It rests first on the authority of Jesus. It rests secondly on the assignment he's given to us. And it rests thirdly on the assurance that we've received in him that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. This is the very last thing that is said in the gospel of Matthew. It's the very last words that Matthew records, which if you think about it is very fitting because the first chapter, the opening chapter of the gospel of Matthew gives a name to Jesus. It calls him by the name Emmanuel which means God is with us, God is with us. As Christ came into the world by his virgin birth, he is God with us. And has, as he departs from this world by ascending to heaven to go and to reign at the right hand of majesty, he promises that he is no less God with us. Friends, just think about what all this means. Think about the endless implications of this for our lives, for our church, and for our commission. It means that Jesus is with us daily to forgive us and to cleanse us from the sin that clings so closely. It means he is with us every moment to sanctify us so that the work he began in us will be brought to completion on the final day. It means that he is with us to strengthen us in our moments of greatest weakness so that his power can be perfected within us. He is with us to defend us from the enemy who prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is with us to gently guide our steps and to lead us on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He is with us in the heights of earthly success, to elicit gratitude within us for the good gifts that he gives. He is with us in our moments of greatest sorrow to apply the healing balm of his comfort. Yes, in life and in death, in sickness and in health, in time and in eternity, he is with us. He is our Emmanuel which means that we will never have to live another moment apart from his presence. Friends, what greater consolation could we desire? What better assurance could he give? J.C. Ryle says that there is no greater assurance. This is the greatest possible promise that Jesus could give to us, that we are never ever going to be friendless and alone for the rest of our days. Ryle continues and he he reminds us that no one ever had such a king, such a priest, such a constant companion, and such an unfailing friend as we who are servants of Christ. I could go on and on about the glories of this assurance and never even scratch the surface. This is inexhaustible. The blessed assurance that we have is glorious beyond measure. So let me just put it as simply as I can. This assurance that Jesus has given us is the joy of our commission. It's the joy of our commission. Because remember what David tells us in Psalm 16, that In the presence of the Lord is what? It's fullness of joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So we pursue kingdom advancement, yes, but we pursue it because we have an overflow of joy and we want to share this joy that we have. We want as many people as possible to experience the joy of knowing Jesus. I mean, we we talked about this at the very beginning of our service. Our, our, Our call to worship was from Psalm 67. What does that Psalm say? It says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. This card, as simple and as unassuming as it may look, this card is an easy way for you to spread that kind. Joy. We don't care about Emmaus having a bigger platform. This isn't some way for us to get word out about our church so that we can boost our numbers. This is not about that at all. No, this is about more and more people rejoicing in the presence of Jesus. We want others to know the joy of eternal life, the joy that we have. That's what we want, friends. That's what we're after. That's why we pursue kingdom advancement because the business of our commission is joy. So would you do these three things? This is the ask. Would you pray? Would you care? Would you share so that others may rejoice? Let's pray together. Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And we, we just think about the mind-boggling nature of your authority, and it, it makes us want to ask, who are we that you would be mindful of us, let alone call us to live for your kingdom? You have included us in the most important thing that has ever existed, your plan to to redeem all things. God, this is the chance, of the chance of a lifetime. To spread joy to the ends of the earth so that more people may know you and rejoice in you. And as we follow you, as, as we obey you, you've given us the greatest thing imaginable. You have pledged to us your very presence. As individuals, Lord, we will come and go. Our time on this earth is short. God, as your church, we are invincible. We are your eternal bride. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. Because you promised to be with us. You are Emmanuel. And so we praise you for this in your great name. Amen. In just a moment, we are going to come to the Lord's table where we will actually get to partake of the assurance we have received from Jesus. He has promised to be present with us in a special way when we observe this meal. On the night that he was betrayed, Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus was around a table with his disciples and he was eating with them and he took into his hands a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus mentioned there at the very end of the statement is already, about, it's already at hand. The kingdom is is already at hand. It is already advancing to the ends of the earth. And yet at the same time, this kingdom is not yet fully consummated. We still await the end of the age at which time Jesus will return from heaven and we will see him face to face. Scripture tells us that we will be made like him because we will see him as he is. Which means... That for us today, until that day comes, when Jesus returns, we proclaim his death through this meal. So all who are baptized into Jesus, we want to invite you to come to the table. If you have taken up your cross, if you have counted the cost, and if you are willing to follow him to the ends of the earth, then we ask you to come to this table this morning. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you're not following him, we want to respectfully ask you to stay in your seat. Instead of coming to the table, consider what you are witnessing as the church comes forward to receive this meal. Consider what you're seeing. Consider what we are proclaiming, that the body of Christ was broken and the blood of Christ was shed for sinners like you and me so that all who call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. If you would call upon his name today, if you would place your trust in him, if you would turn away from the ways that you've been walking in, he will fill your life with a joy that you cannot imagine. So would you do that this morning? We plead with you. For those of us who will come, we're going to begin in the front row here for the, the front of the room. and We'll move successively to each back each row behind that. So starting in the front, moving to the back. We'll come down this aisle here on this side of the room and we'll make our way across the front to the table over here. That'll just help us keep things in an orderly fashion. All right, church, come and take this meal. Jesus is waiting.